Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park I was writing these articles like about the zoo or about rubber or about um, like convenience stores just because I'm fascinated by that subject. And here at Saigoneer, our whole philosophy we're very lucky to have is if you're interested in it, if you're a nerd about it, if it gets you excited, write it. It'll find an audience. You know, people will connect. And if they don't, the very few that it connects with, it'll hopefully will be a profound connection because you are profoundly connected to it. My name is Paul Christensen. I'm an American who's writing and editing in Saigon. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. From an outsider's perspective, um, how do you think being Vietnamese has changed uh, since you've arrived for, you know, all these years? When I first came to Vietnam, the concept of Vietnamese or Vietnam was a relative blank slate. Where I'm from originally in the States, we don't have a Vietnamese American community or any diaspora that I would have anything to base my concept of Vietnamese on. So it was kind of encountering it all at once. Uh, for the first time uh, in 2000. 15, 2005, and then I moved here in 2015, and I've been here since then. And so it's my understanding of what it means to be Vietnamese kind of grows and evolves mm -hmm. the longer I stay here and, and influences me during that time um, to be more flexible, more outgoing, I think, kind of in response to what I see around me, to the flexibility, the openness, and the generosity of the people that I encounter. You you arrived in Vietnam in 2005, you said? Yeah, so when I was an undergraduate student, I did a semester abroad in East Asia. So I went to China, Thailand, and spent uh, about a month and a half here in Vietnam. And that was my first uh, introduction to the country and kind of put a flag in my mind of like, okay, I need to come back here in a much more thorough, deep way when, when I'm able. And it took, took a while, but yeah, finally was able to move here in 2015. But why Vietnam and not another country like Thailand or any other country you visited? Um, why Vietnam? It would be probably uh, exaggeration to say that Vietnam was always, you know, this place that I had a gold star next. So I'm going to come here no matter what. Um, but it wasn't exactly that. I did. Um, after I graduated from college, I lived in Japan for a couple of years. Uh, and when I finally had an opportunity to finish graduate school and wanted just kind of time to explore and adventure, Vietnam seemed like the perfect place. Um, just from kind of what I'd always remembered about it. And then just the subtle ways Vietnam kept coming across my life. Um, 
I remember like reading literature, Ocean Vuong and Viet Thanh Nguyen right around that time were kind of really getting mainstream attention and their names kept coming. I'm like, All right, maybe, maybe this is a sign that I need to figure out what's going on over there and, and take a look. What was going on over there or over where you are <laughs> in Vietnam? What was going on that drew you to it? Seeing how so many exciting projects or initiatives or just people were able to have an idea, have an interest, have a spark and just run with it and just um, pursue what they wanted to pursue and share it and get a lot of energy behind it, a lot of often youthful energy behind uh, what they were interested in, in a way that maybe in the States, I didn't see happening as much as a little more, you have to go through official channels, there's a way to do everything. This is kind of the routine. This is the trajectory, you get in line, and you follow the trajectory. And there was a little bit more uh, freedom to, to just do what you wanted to do and figure out how you want to do it. It's so ironic, the, uh, the two things so far, we're like a few minutes into our uh... Our episode here and we're talking about the yellow star and freedom these yeah are, i know that un, unintended unintended totally. um, metaphors but, but it's it's great it's great because it gives us some fodder right to talk about right now because i can imagine you know i come with a lot of political baggage i think when i'm just being me thinking about uh, my road and my inroads to you know vietnamese uh thinking because there's this kind of polar opposites of like being outside being inside and there's no neutrality uh, sort of in, in, in where I come from but when I talk to somebody like you and you know I want to shout out to Chief Phan Quy Mai uh, Nguyen Phan Quy Mai author of the Mountain Sings and she introduced us so I was like okay this is a this is a very strong connection and we sat uh, in um, Saigon a few uh, months ago and I, there's this deep connection and I realize how much you love Vietnam. And I'm like, I would love to have you on the podcast. And here we are. This is here. But but the reason I bring all this stuff up is because, you know, uh, you come with you come in with a, a clean slate. Basically, you don't have any expectations or any color other probably than the war, you know, wherever you're from, you 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 probably can say, you know, there's this kind of image of Vietnam. But for the most part, I think, you know, you, you come in relatively kind of with an open mind. And I want to spend this episode talking about all the wonderful perspectives that you have because of the things that you've worked on. Um, you're, you wrote for Saigonier for many years and con content uh, director today. And you've done so much in the Vietnamese liter literary world in Vietnam. So you offer a lot of perspective that, that I'm really curious and i'm fascinated with with your um your journey and you're a young person that have you know spent so much years in, in vietnam so it's very your perspective is very valuable to me and, and i want to hear a lot about uh, the way you think oh thanks i mean i'm so honored and thank you again for for having me on and talking it's really a thrill yeah, I, you're very um, and I think and you're, when we talk, it's just like, whoa, and then there's layers and then I'm read up more about you. And I'm like, whoa, there's there's a lot going on here. So I'm sorry, I cut you off. Oh, thank you. Um, I think you're absolutely right about blank slate. And I think um, it's a great privilege that I can come here with a blank slate, especially, you know, I'm 36. My parents weren't involved in the war. No, I don't have any family members. So 
growing up, Vietnam really, other than the what, like four days in history class in 10th grade or whatever it was, really was not something I was introduced to to form any impressions until I was in university, until I came here for the first time. And that extends even while I'm here, I think, of people will talk to me regardless of their backgrounds, their political stances, their geographical backgrounds, because they can't say to me like, oh, you are you know, a southerner. Oh, you are a northerner. Oh, your family is this. Oh, your family is that. I'm right. just, I'm just can be kind of an yeah. individual and a, a blank vessel to be filled with whatever they want to share. So I think that is an extreme blessing that, that I am fortunate to have. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so many Vietnamese people living outside of Vietnam that really don't care about Vietnamese literature. You know, it, they just don't think about it. They, cause they have to survive that the, make money and they're enjoying the money making or they're enjoying whatever field they're in. But to really study and to be a part of this Vietnamese literature scene, you know, it's, it's, it's very special. And I want to talk about how did you get into this world and how did you get into this work? Yeah. I mean, my, my background and kind of passion is literature. Um, poetry particular and also fiction. I just grew up loving to read. And then at some point I was um, fortunate enough to find out, oh, I can continue studying that. I can go get a master's degree in poetry. And, you know, I was doing this all for fun and was lucky enough that I could continue to pursue it with the knowledge very much in my mind that this is probably not a great financial career decision to do. But if you love it, life's too short to, mm-hmm. to not give yourself a chance to get as deep as possible into something that one loves. So when I came to Vietnam, I just finished uh, graduate school and I came here and was lucky enough, I guess, to have uh, something I'm passionate about help me integrate initially and like explore and understand because there's no better way, in my opinion, to really learn about people and learn about places in history than reading about it. I mean, movies are good. Talking to people is, of course, essential, but really reading it uh, offers a special intimacy. So reading it was selfishly helping me to understand the country better, helping understand and connect with people in a a much more uh, fruitful way, I think. Um, And then just over time, getting to know people, having the benefit of writing for Saigoneer, which is uh, arts and culture, history, literature, publication online, gave me kind of an easy in of approaching writers that I like and not just saying, Hey, I'm a fan. I'd love to talk to you, but Hey, I'm a fan. I'd love to talk to you. And I will write an article, which was kind of an easy way to, to have that excuse to start a conversation, which conversations turn into friendships, friendships turn into collaborations, introductions to other people. I mean, that's how we met um, from Chi Kwai Mai introduced us. I knew her because I'd read her poems years ago and just cold called her. So it kind of all snowballs and, and I think the, the most important part of that is I think it's all from a love of yeah. literature and of each other's work because nobody's getting rich off of it. Nobody's, you know, you, there's no promotional potential yeah. really of any, of any great value. It's because you love it and you like to discuss it with people that share that passion and that energy. Yeah. And that's what I recognize about you. You know, there's a purity to the love of what you're doing. And I recognize it. I, I, re- yeah, you're right. There's nobody's getting rich off this stuff and nobody will, uh, you know, yeah. but look at you. Quay Mai now. I mean, God almighty. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's crazy. And Absolutely. it could not happen to a more generous, like warm person. <laughs> and she's the exact same now as she was before it happened. So it's, it's so cool to see. But I mean, isn't that sort of the way this magic works is like because you're generous and because she's so giving with her time and her energy and her responses, it's put her in the space where, I mean, let's put her talent aside. I mean, just just being that warm, energetic human being has, you know, it really does pay dividends to be that naturally giving. Oh, yeah. And I think her generosity of just if somebody I, even once things started blowing up, you know, she get calls for this is a school group or a book club that said, hey, can you Skype in? And you're, you know, in an opposite time zone. Yep, she would do it, you know, every single time. And that, yeah, that generosity, I think. Yeah, that generosity has ripple effects. Yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's 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 insane. Well, that that brings me to um, first of all, let's talk this idea of, of bridging, right? So, you have uh, said that, or you've really made it made a big effort to kind of bring Vietnamese writers to the outside and to to America or to the Americans and vice versa you've brought you know you've talked about you know Vietnamese writers in in the diaspora back into Vietnam and be this bridge how did that work start um little little bit by little bit and it is definitely the most thrilling part and kind of where I see that I can have the most effect you know as as a writer I'm one drop into a very full pool, especially if I'm publishing things in America. Um, but if I'm bringing, you know, a collection of Vietnamese writers over to America, that's one of not very many collections that'll exist. So that has, I think, a large potential to impact people. Uh, and it's through just time of connections, really, of getting to know people, having connections in the American literature scene, just from my time there, and now having been here long enough to have friends that write and friends that publish and kind of those those informal means, which I personally uh, always really hated for a long time. I thought it's art and the artist should be separated as much as possible. Not about, you know, as a personal life good, but in terms of I was publishing under pen names because I didn't want if they were friends with me that they would select my work because we're friends. You know, it's the art only. It's only what I've written, judge it 100% on that, um, which I've learned is kind of a naive way to approach it. And really, at the end of the day, friendships and connections are helpful, if not necessary, sometimes. So as I've kind of one thing I've learned from being here in Vietnam and having those connections and seeing how it's not about using them to get things places, it's about collecting your energies together and doing together what you couldn't do as any one individual. Wow. So you grew up with meritocracy of, you know, the work needs to speak for itself name. Yeah, that's what I, that was kind of my big whole idea for a long time. And I'm, I'm glad it's changed. Uh, I'm glad that I've learned and learned here, learned about it. But sometimes, though, the writing isn't so great, but the artist or the writer might have gotten to where because of special connections. I mean, that happens everywhere, not just in Vietnam. But is that okay? Like, what's, you know, is there anything wrong with that? Uh, I mean, 
Right. That's the that's the slippery slope, right? You go yeah. too far and that's what you have happen. You have people that work that's not that good getting attention based on connections or past work or big names or money can factor in at some point. Yeah. I mean, I mean, behind that kind of stuff happens, you know, um, and it's it's a slippery slope. And and I think if your choice is complete meritocracy to ensure that that never happens, you lose things. Yeah, but you leave the door open. Also, if you do welcome in the role of of relationships beside the work, so it's tricky. It's tricky to find that balance, and I think every individual has to kind of decide where they lie and and what's okay for them. And it's messy, but I think it's the best way, maybe. To... Yeah, I mean, it, nothing's black and white, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it's messy, but you we have to navigate and figure things out like that. You know, uh, what you were a Fulbright scholar, right? And and is that what yes. brought you to Vietnam or no? Yeah, so um, I it was the Fulbright grant was just a teaching. So they put you in a gifted high school, and everyone is different a little bit. And so that's why I came to Vietnam and we got the kind of email saying I picked Vietnam, but I didn't get to choose within Vietnam where I'd go. And I got an email saying, you know, you're going to go to Quy Nhung. And I had to Google where that is and yeah. see the big, you know, horseshoe uh, beach. I'm like, okay, I think this will be okay. <laughs> and um, I was absolutely blessed by the situation. And the, the school I was at was wonderful because their philosophy was, you know, we don't have foreign teachers that have, you know, vetted academic backgrounds or, you know, quote unquote, like um, the steamed ability or what, however they want to say, whatever. Um, so we're just going to give them the opportunity to learn from you, whatever you want to teach them. So you'll wow. have a couple hours a week with um, the students and you can do whatever you want. And I was worried I was going to be like, you know, flashcard English teacher. And one of the first days the student raises his hand, he goes, yeah, what's the difference between licentiousness and, and I'm like, what? I'm like, okay, if you know that word, like we don't need to do English. We're going to learn about haiku this week. We're going to oh. have you guys, you know, write little plays and perform them. We're going to have you um, tell stories, just whatever they want to do. And a little bit to let them be teenagers and have fun. And That's amazing. Um, but yeah, that's how, that's how I first arrived here was through the Fulbright. And how long were you uh, in Quignon for? Uh, a year. So I was there for a year placement. You know, that's uh, a beautiful beach town, right? Yeah, it's a gorgeous place. Under underrated. Underrated. For, I'd say get there now because like there's I was just there a few weeks ago actually to see some of my former students that, that had also gone back for a trip. And it's coming. The changes are coming. They yeah. can point out like, oh, this plot of land got bought up by Novaland. Oh, this place has got bought mm -hmm. up by here. So they're not constructed yet, but it's it's changing, but it's gorgeous as it is now. Yeah, it's a beautiful, uh, still untapped, relatively untapped. How does how does that make you feel? Um, watching, it's a bittersweet transformation to me. Yeah, it, it is. It is, and I'm I'm always kind of uncertain because it's one reaction for me as an outsider that appreciates it for certain reasons. But so I tried to talk to a lot of my former students and their families and be like, what do you guys think? Like, yeah. this is your hometown. This your your opinion is much more important and grounded than mine is. And they kind of had similar of bittersweet of like, you know, 
it's sad when your childhood home where all your great memories are. It's sad when that changes. Change is sad in general. Um, yeah. But then they'll also say for a lot of people, it's been really good for bringing in money and making families' lives that were pretty difficult easier and helping in that financial way. So they kind of see see both sides. Um, yeah. But bittersweet. Yeah. And Vietnam is just transforming so quickly. It's incredible. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, you know, I talk about this quite often. People here in the U.S., uh, Vietnamese Americans, uh, my parents' generation have never been back. And they still think people are having very, and people are, I'm sure are, uh, majority of the country is having a difficult time. But, you know, that difficulty is not what the difficulty 30, 40 years or even 50 years used to be. It's, it's, a, it's difficult, but it's still like difficult people are still on smartphones, you know, it's, there, there's yeah. a lot to, it's it's not as difficult as we think it is it's difficult but it's not difficult right yeah do they believe you when you tell them about the changes or do they think like no you're they don't want to hear it they don't want to hear uh -huh. it and i think there's a sense of hurt you know i think people of that generation um lost a lot and i i i sympathize i can empathize with that and i can totally understand you know you know, my brother was talking to me about this. You know, we, we, we at, at this point, I think politically or if it's a generational thing, we don't want to, I don't want, and he doesn't want us to lose family members or friends for these things. Because it's like, how do they, they just don't know what they don't know, right? And yeah, somebody like you, someone like my brother who's been living there for 20 years, and I go back you know, two, three times a year. We just know, and there's no way you can argue with somebody who just doesn't know. So instead of like really alienating the whole community or these older generational, uh, these older generation people, we, I'm learning now to just sit in the discomfort, sit in the uncomfortable mm -hmm. silence of the disagreeing part, and just kind of like accept it and let them be instead of losing them. Yeah. Right. If those are your two options, I guess. Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, changing people's minds about communism or whatever capitalist capitalist structures that is sort of semi in, in existence in Vietnam. Now it's like, how do you explain that to people who are non-believers? Yeah. yeah. And if it's, if they've spent 30 years coming to their opinions, good luck trying good luck. to yeah. change it in any yeah. way. Yeah. You know, um, I want to shift over to uh, the zoo, the Saigon Zoo. Yeah. Um, you, this was something that you wrote, right? The, the essay that you wrote. Um, yeah. You wrote a, a lot of interesting things. And my connection to the zoo is uh, through Stefan Gogger's uh, film, Owl and the Sparrow. I think yeah, he shot great. it in 2008 or nine. wrote it in, around that time. And um, while I was reading your, your piece, it just really me back to uh the memories uh, of the stories that he told me as he was shooting the film uh the alan the sparrow um yeah so that's that's sort of our, our that's so cool and we were talking before we started recording but i love that movie and i've never heard anybody else or had the chance to talk to anybody else about it and it's it's so cool uh, it's a beautiful movie it's gorgeous and then especially within the context of I personally can go and see this, you know, the, the location and see all the places those scenes came from. How, how did you come across the film? 
I honestly can't remember. It was a few years ago. I want to say Netflix, but I mean, you would maybe know better than I would if it was on Netflix. It might not have been. It might have been on YouTube. It might have even been on one of the other pirate sites out there. Um, I honestly don't even know how it came. I mean, I would do cursory searches for Vietnamese movies um, and it came up on something. And did you watch the movie before you wrote that or did you um, watch it after? Did you watch it after or before you wrote that piece? Um, well before. I think I might have even watched it before I moved to Saigon when I was still living in Queen Young. Uh, so it had been a while. Probably, I, I don't know if I've watched it again since I started going to the zoo frequently. I, should, I, I want to now. Because, um, yeah, it's, it's been a few years since I watched that movie. You know, I watched it twice, but a while ago. Yeah. Why is this even important that we're talking about the zoo? Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to just kind of prompt it and then I will kind of give you my two cents on why it's important. It's important yeah, to talk about the zoo right now because of what you said in your piece about history and about sucking resources out of Vietnam during those years and the zoo is not what we it's not what we think it is, you know? So can you Give me a tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, um, that kind of theme I, of sucking resources out of Vietnam comes up time and time again uh, as I research or learn about more things. And of course, the very obvious ones on the, the forefront that, you know, whether it's opium production, of course, in colonial times, or even resources like rubber or coffee production those are pretty obvious easy to see the connection and you're not really that surprised when you hear that like france you know tried to plant rubber here to get money from the colonies because they weren't making money otherwise but then you start seeing it in in much subtler smaller more surprising areas like rice wine how that whole thing functioned um but the zoo so the zoo was originally the botanical gardens half of that name is very important and it was kind of a training ground for what outside or internal plants could be grown here successfully with purely commercial purposes you know what can we grow uh cotton here i don't know let's try it in our botanical gardens and see how it mm -hmm. goes and so using it as like a staging ground in a lot of ways to see what could be grown uh and exported and was that a French government program? Yeah, yeah. So it was um, a few of the kind of bigger names amongst the, the colony were kind of given that as their playground. And I'm sure there were people involved that really were not, you know, hardened capitalists who were just focused on making money. That, that to, to be able to care for plants or animals, they were certainly still passionate about that field. But that was kind of the purpose for the zoo lurking behind the surface. Yeah. And, and how well is the zoo maintained today? I would say not great. Um, ironically, the, the people that need the money might have or want the money might have changed over the last yeah. little more than a century. But the need for the zoo to make money remains, unfortunately. So over time, even in the you know half dozen years I've been here, they've slowly added kid amusement rides restaurants like teen zones to try and make money from the zoo which kind of impacts it's that's the priority for a lot of it as opposed to the care of the grounds or the 
care of the animals. Yeah. So it's, it's, and of course, I mean, zoos are complicated. Zoos are messy in terms of yeah. animal welfare. And then that spirals out to larger human impact on the globe and um, stewardship of the planet. So it's, it's a tangled, messy topic. It, it really is. And uh, how many, I mean, you're not a zoo professional, but since we're on the topic, how many zoos are there in Vietnam? Do you know? Um, I would guess about probably a half dozen. There's a big one in Hanoi. Saigon's is kind of the biggest um, and definitely the oldest. And then some of the smaller towns, cities have them. I mean, Phu Quoc has one, Nha Trang has one, Quinh Yong has one. Um, I imagine some of the other cities throughout the country do as well. Yeah, you wrote something really um, horrifying or, or really sad about uh, baby cubs allegedly two decades ago. Yeah, that I, I was told by um, that story by a, a former, he's retired now, but he worked for like the state forestry and his friends with a former director of the zoo. And at the time, one of the tigers had given uh, birth to cubs, which we think would be like fantastic, right? That's a, a reason for celebration because you not only whatever metaphorical purpose or, or whatever, but they have value to bring people in or to help spread knowledge of the animal kingdom, get people excited about the animal kingdom, or if need be, send them to other zoos to help propagate the species. But they were just too expensive, apparently, to raise, to feed. And so they got killed, they got drowned. Which is horrifying. Yeah. 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 What, man, what, what more can, what more can they do? You know, it's, it's that, that technology to probably raise these cubs are just way beyond anybody's pay grade. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's tough. I will say one of the kind of heartwarming stories when it comes to the zoo was within a lot, during the pandemic when Saigon, obviously, like the rest of the world was hit pretty hard and, the zoo, which still relies a lot of money on um, entrance tickets, asked for donations or let it be known that they were open to donations might be more accurate. And people just flooded in. Local oh, wow. people just absolutely overwhelmed their expectations for money that they could get from the community. And my thinking is that it's a lot of people who just have sentimental connections to the zoo that really appreciate it. That they grew up and their parents took them there on one of their few family days out or they take their kids there on one of the few Saturdays that they have free as a family to go or they have you know fond memories of young romance at the zoo or going yeah. with their buddies and and it was surprising to see how much that meant to the greater Saigon or Vietnam community that was, that was good to hear well you know that that zoo is positioned in a very amazing place in in the city it's like almost Central Park if you think about it right yeah yeah and it forms that kind of that that long corridor you've got the the palace on one side and then it just goes straight over right to the zoo and it's just this great runway of sorts of trees and... yeah it's so i can imagine you know young couples going in there because there's just so much to walk around and, and see like yeah it's like it's kind of like their central park but with animals yeah yeah it really is and, and that's one thing i try and tell people is if you have qualms and probably justifiable very much so about animals being kept there in conditions of animals go there to enjoy the park it's one of the best collections of trees and grasses and water in central saigon so it's as a park it's fantastic too for that you know so the book that you gave me is the anthology right so 
you know, I picked up the book and so you open it up and half of it is in Vietnamese and then you flip the book over and then you start turning it and it's in English, the translation. Tell me about the book. Tell me about how you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the book started... Um, I was writing these articles like about the zoo or about rubber or about um, like convenience stores just because... I'm fascinated by that subject. And here at Saigonier, our whole philosophy we're very lucky to have is if you're interested in it, if you're a nerd about it, if it gets you excited, write it. It'll find an audience. You know, people will connect. And if they don't, the very few that it connects with, it'll hopefully will be a profound connection because you are profoundly connected to it. Uh, so I'm very blessed to have that kind of attitude allowing me to explore these things. So I was just writing them for Saigonier and then my um, my friend who's the translator, pen name, um, purposefully unpronounceable pen name. If you look at it, people will think it's a misspelling, um, but uh, she also goes by Luna or something. Uh, um, incredible woman, fascinating story. She was becoming well-known as a fiction writer in Saigon pre-76 um, and continued and it's her, it's her life story to tell so I won't expand beyond that but um, we became friends and we get together for dinner just chatting often united around literature and talking about books and we're nerds so we would just translate and co-translate things together she would read my essays on Saigonier and we just translate them or she would she's a fiction writer so she'd have her short stories and kind of do a loose translation into English and I would just touch up the edges or we talk mm -hmm. about them and we were just kind of playing with translations and playing with each other's work because we like it and it's fun. And some other kind of writer friends who have connections with publishers or publish a lot themselves had done all these translations, put them together and publish it. And so, oh, yeah, okay. That's not why we were doing this, but sure, let's, let's do it. So we kind of fell into it. Um, uh. And we're lucky enough to have people that wanted to help promote it and push us to be like, do something with this. Don't just keep doing these for fun. Well, I, I have a lot of appreciation for your nerding out. And I look at <laughs> all the topics that you uh, tackle. And I'm one of the people that is fiercely interested in all of these topics. Oh, now, not one of them do I go, mm, no, I skip. And I wrote them all down as... We could spend hours per topic talking about the history of rice wine, well worship, uh, in defense of Saigon's most neglected museums, the rubber plantations, Lukbin, which is hyacinth as an invasive species. And so, like I said, we can nerd out and because these are all very, um, these are all topics that I like, I want to talk about. And sort of like the way I, so cool. yeah, look at the pot, my podcast is the same thing. It's like, well, you know, I got to. Yeah. The house of hoes i gotta give the room there to 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 do its thing because it's part of vietnamese pop culture but at the same time i want to talk and give attention to the subjects that we just talked about so we finished uh the zoo topic and i want the next thing if we can talk about the history of rice wine a little bit so i kind of do want to touch on on all these topics if, if if you don't mind yeah 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 absolutely it's, it's so cool to hear and i can imagine like thinking of new ideas like, oh, what would he think about this? Ah, he would like it. Let's go, you know, to, yeah. to hear that people are excited about it means so much. Yeah. So, yeah. Talk um, to me about the history of rice wine. I, you know, we, we, we don't uh, have yeah. the, the weeds, but, but 
I, yeah. I, yeah. Just want to hear it from you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Yeah, I think um, like all the topics just kind of came up because I either found a sliver of something, heard something, or was just interested in it. And I think, you know, enough times going to people's houses and being invited to try their homemade rice wine coming from the American perspective where you don't really get a lot of moonshine. I mean, no, like people craft, make their own beer now. It's kind of a new, a new trend yeah. for sure. But people don't really make liquor and hand it to you in a, you know, repurposed plastic bottle very often. So I was just fascinated, like what, what's going on here? Um, and there's been some academic stuff written about it. And so between that and talking to people, talking to friends' parents who were doing it, got to learn a little bit more. And was just shocked by, again, going into themes of resource uh, theft, pretty much, and influence, but also how rice wine clashed with modernity in the sense of imported wines, imported cognacs, and how the power to frame one as foreign and extravagant and rice wine is naque and undesirable mm-hmm. and how those play out even today how we see the effects of previous colonial depictions of local wine still having an impact today i found it was fascinating uh and then now kind of a nice trend seeing it coming back and seeing you know hip cool bars in saigon is a lot really emphasizing their homemade rice wine that they make into fancy cocktails and stuff and kind of seeing it come whole circle at least as a, a nice happy ending because otherwise it's a pretty depressing story about how they tried to take away Vietnamese ability to make and enjoy their own liquor and profit from it. But that's a story of 
people in poverty everywhere, right? Like I think of like, I don't know, I, I associate it naturally, you know, maybe 10 years ago when I think of uh, Rude, is what we're talking about, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Rude, yeah, yeah. I think of Appalachian, you know, the Appalachian people in America and the Appalachians, you know, it's like, that's what they're probably drinking, moonshine from that, you know. And it's sort of like, that's what we think like impoverished communities are drinking. But today, there's a company in Dallas, Texas. Uh, they've been in business for a few years now. They, I had them on the, the podcast. They're called Suti uh, Distillery. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yeah, I've had that or seen it. Yeah, they're, so they're the first uh, Rude Distillery in the U.S. Uh, and, and, and it tastes really, really good. It tastes really, really good. It's not yeah. like the repurposed uh, water bottles that I've had on Yao tables in Vietnam. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's there's a smoothness to it. There's a you know there's a fine uh, refined taste to to that sort of rude. So yeah, you're right. It's just like this. There's so much going on with the history of rice wine. Yeah, and and that's I actually do remember with Saigonier, we had somebody write an article about them and interviewed them as part of a series looking at diaspora, mostly F and B, kind of what they're doing outside of Vietnam changing things, returning to old traditions, yeah. and that was one of them. But I think it really is a trend and a source of, um, you know, similarity between different places, different countries. Anywhere in the world, you can probably find old traditional things being reappreciated, reformatted, re quote unquote discovered by young, younger people that want to want to preserve it. And yeah. that idea that people are committed to preserving while having to learn about it before they can preserve it. I think is pretty neat. Yeah. That same company is now getting into whiskey, which is very interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah it's, huh. it's pretty, pretty brilliant. They gave me a bottle and I, I don't want to break the, I don't want to break the seal. Cause it's like the first, batch coming out of the distillery uh, for whiskey so i'm like yeah it's you gotta convince them to send you a second one yeah. you gotta get another one to exactly i'm just gonna buy it yeah no what about this business of whale worship ah uh, whale worship uh, that's another kind of topic where just kind of heard a sliver of it i was looking at a photo competition somewhere i was in a museum in like the Nangar museum and one of the photos was of a whale and the caption mentioned whale worship. And I thought, whale worship? I've never even heard of that. And I kind of just put it in the back of my mind for a while and then um, brought it up to some friends here in Saigon and said, whale worship, you know, what, what is this? And I'm like, I don't know. I think people on the coast do that. I don't know. And so they, you know, when, when somebody here tells me they don't know about something here, it makes me really want to know. It's kind of that yeah. extra energy to find out. So I, you know, traveled around and talked to some people and did a little more research and explored around a little bit and found that in a lot of places up and down the coast, they have pretty extensive and varied ways to show reverence for whales and kind of attach different, depending on the person, depending on the area, um, a different relationship with Kaong or the whale god often ascribing uh, the god who can be a whale, but also sometimes not a whale, just a big fish, not all big fishes. They will completely argue also. And I was back there doing something with uh, VTV filming about, about the whales. And we were interviewing a man and he was saying, yeah, they can have tails that are like this, or they can have tails that are like this, which if you know, like, um, what are, you know, 
scientifically, no whales have tails. Like that's a fish tail. That's not a mammal tail that goes only, you know, this way. But in their concept, no, it's still a whale. You know, so it's, it's a really interesting way to kind of step back and be like, okay, I'm thinking of whales by a very scientific taxonomical understanding of the word whale. Not exactly the same for whale worship, but some of them will credit the whales with being able to provide calm seas or ensure fortuitous um, fishing ventures out into the water. Some even told me about a time when they protected them from coast guards because they were fishing in illegal water and they weren't supposed to be there. And the whales somehow drew the coast guard away so they didn't get in trouble. One man I talked to claims to have been physically saved by a whale when he fell into the water and the whale came up under him and picked him up and brought him safely uh, to shore. Uh, and when, actually, when I went back, there were people that were there tending the grave in the exact same way you would tend to a relative's grave. So, you know, placing the incense, burning the joss paper, coming back at certain you know monthly intervals to to pay your respects, and uh, it really is a, a reverence for for whales that I'm fascinated about. And I'm always excited to find things that that other people here don't know about. And that's kind of the biggest compliment I can receive is, wow, I never knew about that, or I never thought about it that way, or I never understood it in that perspective. I'm not gonna say this is embarrassing for me, but it's pretty embarrassing that I didn't even know that there's whales in Vietnam. <laughs> well, no, that's a fair, it's a fair uh, reaction. Let, let Scientists don't even know how many there are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so understudied. There's been no like formal from within Vietnam or outside of Vietnam, formal coast, you know, coastal um, studies on a scientific sense to even know. So it's, it really is kind of just waiting to be explored more to somebody go out there and, and find more. Yeah, because it, it, it makes me think of like the um, other cultures that have big whale, um, you know, whale you know whales in their culture i mean in their religion and their uh way of life you know um i'm thinking of maybe alaska or you know places that are yeah. you know american indian eskimo like that's sort of what we kind of like equate to not somewhere in the you know tropical hot vietnam there's whales and you know this culture there yeah yeah it really is surprising and i think part of it and again, I'm not an expert on this, but compared to maybe some of like, yeah, the um, Northern Americas and Northern areas of Japan, um, I don't know if Vietnam has the same history of deep sea fishing, of going out for weeks at a time where they would have encountered whales, because most of the foundation for whale worship here is based on whales that wash ashore. So that's how they're encountering whales is the whales that die offshore or get beached and then die, die here. Um, but yeah, it's pretty crazy to think that actually uh, a friend just told me that off the coast, central, central Vietnam, I'm going to be off on the city, might have been Nachang. They just found a whale and or it was either a whale or two whales. And of course, like boats rush out to find it. And now there's kind of some limited debate about if whales are coming here regularly, how do we sustainably develop tourism that can mm. involve whales, right? Because it's 
again, it's tricky. You, you want to be able to let people see whales so you can understand them better, so you can have more appreciation for them as an environmental entity and taking care of the ocean. But if you don't do it well, you're really causing them a lot of harm. Yeah. So kind of that, that balance. If they are coming here regularly, or if there is really that potential to frequently um, bring people to whales, how do you do it wisely and responsibly? You know, as I um, am listening to you talk about the history of rice wine, the Saigon Zoo, well worship, and we're going to get into a few other things. Think about like, at what point do you stop researching? Because if it was me, I would just keep going and going and going. I mean, <laughs> how much time limit do you give yourself? Be like, okay, uh, I'm going to draw the line right here and I'm not going to get more research into this. And I'm just going to present the story to people. Like, where do you stop? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. And one, so again, these articles all kind of originated for Saigoneer, for where I work. And that exact thing was happening where I'd spend months and, you know, a weekly editorial meeting, I'm still researching rice wine. Oh, I've got to interview this professor now. Oh, I need to read this book now. Oh, I need to go here now. And they're like, okay, but you've been working on it for months and you haven't done anything, you know, like you got it. You, we're not paying you to, to do nothing or, or to do only one. So at some point we initiated a fee for if I was writing things over a certain word length, because then it's editorial resources on their behalf to edit all the damn things that I have to pay a little extra into the friendship fund that we use to go out and get dinner and stuff and kind of a, you know, a nice team, team bonding kind of experience. Um, because yeah, for me, that impetus to just keep going, just keep going, just keep going is, is endless. Uh, and there, I've been lucky to have kind of a structural sense of whether it's loose concepts of deadlines or loose concepts of you have other things that I'm excited to write about. I can't get to those if I keep, going on this one but it's it's a challenge and there are things that i've written where I was, man i wish i had a couple more months on that one i'd really like to get deeper into it yeah we we share that kind of dna where um you know you can go down a rabbit hole with all of these subjects and i have a um you know i've, I've talked about this and it's coming uh it's called this video where uh, i'm doing shorter episodes from like eight to twelve minutes of things that I'm interested in that have to do with Vietnam. So just like you, but I am terrified of going into rabbit holes and spending months uh, and, you know, I'm having this problem right now. Uh, you know, there's things yeah. that I want to look into and just look into the microphone. I mean, talking to the mic and look into the camera and talk about the subject, but I don't know where to draw the line with uh, where I have to stop researching. And it's really fucking me yeah, up. It's, it's tough. <laughs> it's it's frustrating right when you have to for me the most frustrating part i'm curious about you is when something is quote unquote done or i need to move on from it and i know there was more there like there were still things that i wanted to explore or learn about or talk about or you know in the context of podcast like you want to ask this person all these other things but you know you need to cut it off that's my biggest pain is is when i stop talking to that and end the 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 the, the zoom call and I go back and I'm like, oh my God, I could have asked that. I could have, and it just, the list keeps building up. And I'm like, all right, well, I did my best. I just have to accept it now that, you know, the 90 minutes to two hours or whatever, I just, I try to squeeze as much information or questions as, you know, that that's humanly possible. And now I'm just okay with it. But yeah. now I'm stepping out into a different format and I'm having trouble because there's just so much to talk about, you know, um, with these topics.
Yeah. So I guess, do you have to put like an artificial, like 10 minutes, it is 10 minutes hard stop. And that kind of is a way to box yourself into it then to force no. you to against your, your greater impulses. No, I, 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 I let it rip. I let it rip until you gas out the, get the, the, when the guests, when the guests energy gases out on that topic, then I do try to organically move forward. Um, and not squeeze out yeah. more cause I like, I have a tendency to, to squeeze more because all the little details to me are like they're just so fragrant you know like yeah yeah exactly yeah there's just so a little like i i i know you know for me and i'm sure there's somebody's gonna be people who are sharing this whole like what we have whales in in vietnam of course we're like we have water on one side right of course there's gonna be whales yeah. within whale worship and you know it's just rabbit hole stuff yeah yeah I, it's it's what's fun though right like to to wake up and know that you anywhere you look there's a little thread you can pull and find yourself just racing towards that rabbit hole to go to yeah now these rubber plantations exist all around vietnam there if anybody visiting vietnam has a chance to walk inside these rubber plantations just because you can they're they're open on the on the highway you can just pull in and just walk. Nobody will stop you because they're typically not fenced. Um, I spent time in the rubber plantations because they're my families and my brother and his in-laws and they, some of them have plantations. So spending time in rubber plantations have been magical for me from day one uh, coming to Vietnam. Um, but there's all this other historical stuff that's rather dark or rather talk to me about that. Yeah, I think I might have first come onto rubber plantations, maybe like some other people do, uh, young people, foreigners, whoever, that they see a rubber plantation like the ones you're describing and they think, oh, that's beautiful. Gorgeous. Like, let's get out and get a selfie, right? Yeah. And I've, I've definitely heard people that like, you know, they'll, they'll have pictures up on Facebook or show a picture and it's in front of a rubber plantation. I'll ask them like, oh, you went to a rubber plantation? I'll go, I don't know what that is. It's just really cool looking, isn't it? I say, yeah, it is. It is really cool. And it's got a crazy backstory, you know, and the, the history of the rubber plantations and how they were used again to the, the theme of how could the French government make money out of Vietnam's, you know, verdant land and soil and people that were of no value to them and that they could exploit and whose lives really meant nothing and were just another small tally on their you know profit sheet as they had to figure out so that's how the the rubber kind of plantations existed here but if you take it back further i think you can this the the topic has many different themes and subjects and if you go back far enough it's really one of human ingenuity of how we turned a little piece of liquid in a tree that it had developed over millions of years to guard itself against insects, how somebody knew to take mm. that and made a ball out of it to play with, and then accidentally found out that they could cover their like crude coats with it to be waterproof. And then how that somehow goes across an ocean where people, you know, find out that it makes better wheels than what they've been using to cover wheels. And then that, you know, so you, so many stories of human migration, human industrialization, the natural world's evolution. I mean, it's, it's, there's, I think a lot of truth, you give me any 
commodity in the world and you can tell almost all the stories of the earth and humanity's place on the earth and rubber for me is just kind of one of those perfect examples and a lot of a lot like the history of humanity a lot of negativity and yeah. bloodshed and tragedy. Yeah. uh before we get into all that dark stuff I want to literally talk about why rubber. Uh, maybe you know, maybe you don't know. I don't know. But when you um, go into a rubber plantation, you see a rubber forest. Uh, there are diagonal cuts on the on the on the on the what is it? The uh, the body of the tree, and it and the yeah. diagonal cuts lead to a bowl. And what drips bowl is white, uh, sappy, gunky uh, liquid. How does yeah. that? Do you know how that white? turns into black tires i mean are they I, adding black two tires i mean how does this work oh that's a good question i don't know because you're right like that's the the latex is the white that comes out and that's the natural yeah. rubber trees just naturally produce that as protection and yeah we don't see white tires racing around i yeah. don't know at what point because i know like they undergo vulcanization and then like the average car tire is only a certain percentage of rubber so there's other stuff in wow. there what that stuff is i don't know let alone like the color um so it must be in that process somewhere but yeah, yeah i don't know it's a good question it's white it looks like uh, elmer's glue when when it comes out of the the, the body of the of the tree yeah and they're not even that big they're just like maybe like 10 inches wide i mean you know i remember yeah the trees are, are not that big but they you know they have thousands of these bowls that are attached to the to, to the tree and it's very interesting how it's collected yeah and it's it's still pretty rudimentary right i mean you literally are just going out there with a knife and cutting the trunk of a tree and yeah. putting a bowl under it i mean it's a it's a very labor-intensive basic process that, that is still still being done that way yeah it's a beaut but it's a beautiful thing too when you you know you step into a rubber plantation and you think about the history and you think about visually miles it feels like an eternity where your eyeballs can't see the end of it and it's just it, you so far down of hundreds of trees and um it's all over it's all over vietnam yeah yeah and it's it's kind of it's become an intriguing part of the landscape right if you go on any drive to the countryside it becomes an important part of that journey of the visual aesthetics of that area which i think yeah are, are very beautiful yeah, especially from Saigon to Dong Nai, um, Long Khan, yeah. you know, Dong Nai, it's, it's rubber plantations everywhere um, in, in yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. Um, you are at Saigonier. How did you get there? Uh, so Saigonier, it's been around for about 10 years. And I was just a reader when I first came to Vietnam, uh, stumbled across it somehow. And when I moved to Saigon, I really wanted to write for it because I was a fan and it kind of seemed like the perfect place, but they didn't have any need for staff. So I just kind of started doing freelance stuff, just kind of throwing my name in whenever possible and just doing what nobody else wanted to do um, in terms of article topics, some stuff that needs to get done for like client writing stuff and just saying, I'll do it, I'll do it, you know, little by little, just showing that, you know, I can write well, I can be accountable, I can answer emails, like, you know, just little by little and just kind of hanging around until there was some staff changes, somebody left um, and was able to kind of get put on full time. Um, how, how did you meet the guys? Grown. 
Um, through a friend of a friend who's uh, Alvin, who's a, a big fan, who listens to your podcast. Um, he's a Vietnamese history uh, student and PhD student in the U.S. And he's one of those people, maybe like yourself a little bit, likes to connect people, you know, likes to know, like, I really like this person. I really like this person. Mm. You might like each other, you know, so kind of setting that up. And then just showing up. Yep. And just showing up. And I think if you spend enough time just, you know, working on something, usually yeah. you can, can get somewhere with it and just having patience. Yeah. And, and that's the thing about, I think my life and many people like humanity, I think there's a luxury to kind of knowing what you're kind of meant to do and what energizes you and puts you in flow state, right? And there's a small population yeah. of human beings that are allowed to do that for one reason or another. Who knows? There's a privilege to arriving at that point where in life you can follow and chase your, your shit. And it's, it, it bothers me to think about it a lot because it's like, well, you know, you get to Vietnam and you, you know, meet the guy who meets, who, you know, you meet a guy, you meet a guy who introduces you to the guy and you find flow state. And then you're privileged enough to just keep doing that and not worry about the money, you know, however you're making money. But the luxury of finding so, God damn, it's just so few of us, yeah. you know. Absolutely. And it feels, I don't know, for me, I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, I just feel so incredibly lucky. And then also I think about like, not just as a whole to, to have that experience you just described, but like the one or two things that had they not gone that way, Wait, yeah. who knows what different trajectory. So like the, um, the translator, my good friend who translated the book, I only met her in person because a friend of a friend needed to get books to her and I was supposed to put them on a grab and send them to her. And I sent the wrong ones. I had a backpack full of books. I pulled them out. I put the wrong, put the wrong one in didn't you know so she messaged me and she said hi you know i'm the person you were sending books to what the hell did you just send me oh shit okay i'll send it right i'll send it right she's like ah if you're close enough why don't you just bring it in person i think because she may have thought like this idiot doesn't know how to properly send a book like, wow. so she invited me over and we got to meet in person had i sent the right book maybe i never would have met her in person and then you know that that whole spiral out who knows where that goes so i just feel so incredibly lucky to have so many of those little, little things that are beyond anything I've done or, or any reflection on my own, anything just luck. And I'm very fortunate. Makes you think like this big universe, you know, is it luck or is it like quantum physics happening in favor of like whatever we're putting in, you know, whatever we're putting out in the universe, you know, because things show up and they just, kind of like situate themselves and allow you to kind of like, but you have to kind of, and that's the thing This like this idea of like prayer in, 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 in religious sort of like traditions where, where you pray, but is it another way of saying, well, quantum level, you're kind of putting out vibrations to, to bring in these things into your, calling it into the existence. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess I'd be curious then too, like how concepts of karma play into that. You know, what are you putting out there that, that results in things coming back in your way? It's got um, to be the same the... system, right? It's all kind of like yeah, thousands and thousands of years of observations of 
gurus or priests or whoever these people are kind of like documenting this stuff. It's like, that's sort of like, no matter what religion, you know, you always sort of get the same system. It, it feels like. Yeah. I think it's been discovered, quote unquote, discovered enough times in enough different contexts that there's gotta be something to it. If that's the, the yeah. lessons that are being repeated over and over. So this uh, fascination with Vietnamese lit, why, why do you think you're so into it? What, what draws you into Vietnamese literature? Uh, I mean, I think the better question, to be honest, would be like, why literature? Because I think mm -hmm. Vietnamese literature, because I'm in Vietnam and I have the opportunity to meet with and have friends mm -hmm. that are Vietnamese. So, what you know, it makes sense that we talk about Vietnamese literature and foreign, you know, whatever literature. But it's just, I think Vietnamese literature in part because that's where I am and I'm friends with Vietnamese writers. So that's kind of the... Maybe that's why Vietnamese literature. Um, and I think there's maybe an added layer that you don't find in literature elsewhere that you find in Vietnamese literature for a few different reasons. One, just the, the length of history and tradition that underscores Vietnamese literature versus, you know, well, if America's only existed as a concept, how long can American literature have existed to develop all these traits and, and traditions to build off of a play with or play against or play towards or all these kind of traditions. And then I think um, in some sense, it's easy. excitement in the in a very neutral term of excitement kind of produces great works. And without saying good, bad or otherwise, Vietnam has had some exciting decades um, for, for quite a while. And I think that's resulted in kind of interesting literature, interesting things to explore within literature. Um, and maybe a lot of places in the world could have similar, similar conditions. Um, are, are you into other, um, uh, yeah, I think, are you into other forms of uh, literature? Yeah. I mean, so my, my main background, uh, is poetry and that's mostly American poetry. So, um, Vietnamese poetry, I think, when I consider what fluency means, you know, there's different layers of fluency, yeah. right? There's being able to converse with somebody, maybe that's a layer or the most basic layer, being able to go and order something in a restaurant, you know, then you, get, then you can read a newspaper, you know, that's a layer of fluency. You can watch a movie without needing subtitles. That's a level. I would contend and put forth that the highest level of fluency would be to read a poem in a language that you're not native to. Like that's the highest level of being able to, because you need everything, right? You need context, you need, weird words you need to understand rhyme and rhythms if they're playing with it in form like there's so much going on there um and that's all to say that i can't read vietnamese poetry that's mm. way beyond my ability to read untranslated poetry you, you, you that's know, the you, goal that's the that's the eventual goal but i got a long way to go you, you bring up a good point because you need to know the words you need to know the syntax you need to know all these rules right but you also need to know that wherever abstract abstraction or abstract thoughts take you that it actually makes sense in that language because you could be like oh i could you know kind of like imagine this to mean this but it's that won't make yeah. sense in the vietnamese world so you have to kind of have exactly. some contextual understanding of what things mean for vietnamese because otherwise your your abstract mind won't be able to go there or go there in American way, or maybe because you're influenced by, you know, Russian lit, you know, you study too much Irish literature. So you're like basing your kind of abstract thoughts on 
different structures, but Vietnamese might, well, specifically Vietnamese might be something totally different. So I think that's another thing in the tool bag that you kind of have to have beyond just the vocab or the way things are yeah. put together. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And even if you you could be fluent in a language, I would yeah. argue you're a native native speaker in a language and not be able to read poetry in that language, totally. not really quote unquote understand it or not get anything personally from it. Or you know, I know in in Vietnamese classes, I get in trouble with my my tutor because she always says you can't say that. I'm like, well, why not? It makes sense. She's like, yeah, but you can only say that in poetry, and that's like her insult. It's like you can only say that if you're writing poetry. Otherwise, people don't know what the hell you're talking about. Only poets say that kind of stuff. So it's it's fun, right? It's a fun way to think about it and play with it. But are, are you pretty fluent, like uh, conversationally, or uh, when you go out to? I can get by, but I'm not. No, I'm not, I'm not as good as I should be for how long I've been here. Um, it should yeah. be it should be a lot better, but we're getting better little by little. Something always to work at. How much longer are you going to stay in Vietnam? I have no plans to leave. I mean, I, I'd like to stay here. Um, yeah, no, I, I, there's no, I guess, more definite way than saying I have no plans to leave and I'd like to keep staying here. I've never had that thought cross my mind of leaving. And what about family, like your mom and dad? Do they ever say, come home to the United States or anything? Uh, I, I'm super blessed with my parents are, are wonderful and, you know, go find happiness, do good in the world and be happy. Um, and of course, missing me and wanting me to come back, of course, but also realizing that you, you have to do what you want to do. You have to find your own way in the world in terms of what you find happiness and satisfying. Um, and they'll come to visit and kind of take an interest, of course, with what I'm doing. But thankfully, they're not in any way pressuring of like, okay, when are you going to come home now? When are you going to move back? And, you got good parents for sure. Not not yeah, just for, I'm very, very not blessed. just for what you just said, but the way you've turned out. I mean, beautiful. You're a beautiful <laughs> no, person. That's credit to them. Credit to them. Paul, what? How much work do you have left? I mean, what kind of work do you kind of want to set for yourself uh, while you're in Vietnam? Oh man, I mean, I, I like so. If we go off the last question of you know, if I ever plan to leave, part of the reason would be no, because there's no the, running out or. Finishing everything is impossible. I, there's lifetimes of things that I'd want to be able to do. Um, endless things to write about. Um, again, you know, we talk about how any single object is a story. You can walk down the street and find a story everywhere. Um, so I don't think it'd be possible to run out of things to write about. Hopefully, as my Vietnamese continues to improve, I've, I work with um, translators to translate novels. Um, so just continuing that, I mean, there's endless novels in Vietnamese that haven't been put into English yet that mm -hmm. need it, that, that the world stands to benefit from being able to read. And then there'll be new people coming along that have works that need to be translated. Um, and then my own work being, you know, so inspired by Vietnam to write my own poetry or creative things or, or take on projects. So, yeah, no, no end possible. Paul, I look forward to years of knowing you and getting to read more of your work. Thank you so much for coming on today. I yeah, likewise. Really appreciate Thank you so time. much for having me. Of course, of course. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. 
You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.